So anyway, Romans chapter 2, verses 25 through 27. It says, For circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision does transgress, transgress the law? But as many times you say circumcision, it's almost like one of those things you say five times fast, you're going to mess it up. So I'm sorry. But before the sermon's over, I'm going to be saying something weird. I know. I mean, <laughs> circumcision. But before we do that, let's take a step back real quick. Obviously, what we always do is just kind of get an airplane look of what we've uh, dealt with so far. That Paul obviously is writing to the Roman Christian there. We know that um, the Roman Christians, obviously, because he's writing a book to a church. And he says, to that church, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome also. Also, meaning he was ready to preach the gospel to the to the Jews and Gentiles, uh, lost Jews and Gentiles, but I'm also ready to preach the gospel to you who are in the church. Which, just like your quote you sent from Washer and the quote I just read from Spurgeon, that that's the pastor's job, that's the preacher's job to standing in the pulpit. It's not to give five points to a better marriage. Now, if those five points to a better marriage are pointing to Christ, that's good. But if it's just coming through and going to practical portions of scripture and bringing that out and Christ is completely left out and it's a waste of a sermon. But Paul was ready to preach the gospel to those who were at Rome, to the Christians at Rome. And before he went to preach the gospel, he starts with the bad news, which is what we often do when we go out and preach the gospel to people. We start with the law, and we show how they're lost before we preach that there's a Savior that saves sinners. And that's what Paul's done. And we saw this week after week after week of Paul destroying the Gentiles' pride. And anything that the Gentile could stand before God and say, oh, but what about this? He destroys all that in Romans chapter 1, if you remember, that downward spiral we saw. Um, and that they love their sin. He deals with all their sins, and then he deals with how they love their sin. And they didn't only love their sin, but they loved the fact that other people were sinning against God too. And then, we, then he transitions to chapter 2 to the Jew there, and that's where we're at. Um, he transitions to this Jew. This Jew that's sitting back in judgment of the Gentiles. Why was he sitting back in judgment of the Gentiles? Because he had the law. He had the written law. The Gentile didn't have that. But the Jew actually had the written law. So he could look to the law and say, oh, but the Gentiles shouldn't be doing this and shouldn't be doing that. But Paul says, but who are you, O man, that sits in judgment of another? And yet you're doing the same thing. And then our, our, our coming up to our smaller context here. Remember a few weeks back we dealt with, it said, Behold, you are called a Jew. They took pride in that. They took pride in the fact that they are called Jews. And that, look, I'm going to look back real quick. And that you rest in the law and make your boast of God and knows his will and approves the things that are more excellent being instructed out of the law. Remember, we, we talked about how those were, those were good things. Those were th 
things that we wish that when on our eulogy, when the pastor's up there preaching, he could say those about us, but that they'd be actually true and real. And that was the problem with the Jews. That wasn't true and real of them. And then they thought themselves to be instructors of babes and, and lights to darkness. They are confident in themselves. Remember that? They are confident in themselves that they were guides for the blind, teachers of babes, and light in darkness. And yet they are the opposite of that. And we saw their hypocrisy. And then we remember it finished up last week in verse 24. And it said, it shows their hypocrisy. You don't even teach yourself, but yet you're teaching others. You say don't steal, yet you're stealing. You say don't commit adultery, yet you're committing adultery. Yet you say don't commit idolatry, yet you are idolatrous. And because of this, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. So you call yourself a Jew, but God is being blasphemed by the Gentiles because of you. So you're not a teacher of the babies. You're not an instructor of foolish people. You're not a guide to the blind. You're not a light to darkness. You are just the opposite of that. Because God's name is being blasphemed. And then we get to this portion here. It says, For circumcision barely profited. So what does Paul do here? He goes to the highest argument that a Jew would make, right? He was circumcised. That's, that's his argument. That's one evidence of them keeping the law, right? And that's why it's an argument for them. That, it was evidence that they kept the law. That you say, oh, you're a descendant of Abraham. Who cares, right? That means nothing without obeying the law. Oh, your genealogy runs back through Solomon and David and Moses and Abraham. What does that matter without keeping the law? So the Jew had this argument. I have physical evidence that I kept the law. Right? And it's circumcision. I have evidence on me that I've kept the law. And I could actually show you proof of it. Right? I've kept the law since my youth. Since I was eight days old, right? Since I was eight days old, I've kept the law. And I have actual proof of it. It wasn't just the fact that I was the seed of Abraham. I actually have proof that I obeyed the law. That was the Jews' argument. I have been circumcised, which is a sign of covenant we Jews have with God. The Gentiles didn't blaspheme God because of me, right? Because I'm a law keeper. And I'm from the loins of Abraham. I have every right to judge the Gentile from chapter 1. Can you hear them? Can you hear those arguments? I've met people like this in real life today. Not even Jews. But just sit back in judgment. I have every right to judge that person. I've kept the law. Right? Though they aren't Jewish today, they think they're better than the unchurched and have every right to judge somebody outside the church even if as they are doing the same things as them. Doing the exact same thing as them. Maybe not in the, in the, in the exact form Maybe they don't walk into the grocery store and steal something, but they're lying on their taxes. Same thing, still stealing. Though we could debate the argument of some taxes, it's still law. And God calls us to obey those laws, right? 
So however, as the Jew may have used this as an argument about circumcision, as though, I've kept the law of Paul. Paul goes right after that. He doesn't stop. He doesn't shy away from this argument of circumcision. He goes right for it. You know why? Because Paul is preparing every single human being for chapter 3 and verse 19 and 20, where it says, Every mouth will be stopped, and nobody shall be justified by the law. That's where they're at. That's where they're going. This is where Paul is taking everybody. He started with the Gentile, then he, almost like he's pulling them like an ox, and then he latches on to the Jew too, and he's dragging them to Romans chapter 3 to show every mouth will be stopped. Not just the Gentiles, but also the Jews. Nobody. It says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Paul, what he's doing, he's pulling the rug right out from underneath him, right? He's painting them into a little corner over here. He's he's taking that argument and pulling it right out from underneath them. You want to go to your circumcision? Let's go there. I'll take you there. I don't need you to go. I'll take you to that argument, and I'll show how foolish that argument is. And that's what he's done. But you notice what he didn't do. He did not disrespect the law of God. Notice what it says. For circumcision verily profits. It says circumcision profits. He did not disrespect the law of God. Now remember, Paul's writing this is still the first century and the the temple was still standing. So there were those that were still practicing Judaism and the old covenant hadn't completely faded away yet, right? So circumcision prophets, if you are a Jew under the old covenant and possibly didn't know about the Messiah had come yet. It does not profit in the sense of earning salvation but profits in the same sense that baptism profits today. It profits in that we are obeying God. God's called you to do this, obey Him. It doesn't earn your salvation, it's simply obeying God. This is what they were called to do. However, they were not called to rest in it. You know what I mean by that? Like, i got circumcision, I'm good. Right? as though it could justify them. Actually, we see in chapter 4 that Paul demonstrates that Abraham was justified before he was even circumcised. So circumcision profits, but not in a salvific sense. Notice what else Paul shows. For circumcision barely profits if you keep the law. If you keep the law. So circumcision is only profitable if you keep the law. If you're a lawbreaker like these Jews were, then you might as well not even been circumcised. That what happened to you on on day 8? That means nothing. If you totally disregard God's law and live live contrary to it. That's Paul's argument, right? It's pretty much the same argument we have someone within the church today, right? I know there's Lutheran groups that would say, look to your baptism, right? And we see that within other so-called Christian groups. Look to your baptism. Your baptismal regeneration, your baptism saved you. If you ever have a doubt, look back. I got baptized on this day. By the way, I gave you that certificate. It's not to say I was saved on that day. 
was I was saved and I was baptized on this day as an act of obedience towards God. It's something we should be happy about. But it's not something that we should rest in, right? Your baptism means nothing if you don't have faith and repentance. Actually, you can get baptized every single day of your life, and if you have not faith and repentance, it means absolutely nothing. And we can actually demonstrate from Scripture people that are in glory today who have not been circumcised or baptized. Though both profit, they profit nothing if that is the object of our faith and not Christ. Christ is supposed to be the object of our faith, not our baptism and not the Jews' circumcision. John Gill says this, Circumcision was of no use to them, but on the contrary was a handwriting against them. The very circumcision, the, their very circumcision, what does it do? It left them without excuse. <laughs> you want to go to that argument about you had you you were circumcised? You know all that did is leave you with no excuse. You have no excuse now. You say you obey God, so you know the law, yet you still lived as though the law didn't exist. You still lived as an antinomian. As one that believes there is no law. didn't make them righteous, but on the contrary, it demonstrated that they had the law and they didn't keep it. So they were as guilty as uncircumcised. That was the first point, which I forgot to mention, was circumcision that profits. The second point is uncircumcision that profits more. Paul uses a hypothetical here in verse 26. Therefore, if the uncircumcision Keep the righteousness of the law. Shall not his uncircumcision, uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? If the uncircumcised keeps the righteousness of the law, which we know couldn't happen, right? And Paul's not arguing that it could. Shall he not be counted as a lawkeeper? If he keeps the righteousness of the law, should he not be counted as a lawkeeper even though he was uncircumcised? That's what Paul's saying. He's using circumcision as a picture of law-keeping. You think circumcision is proof of your law-keeping, but what about those that you would consider law-breakers who are not circumcised? If they keep the law that you don't even keep, which is more profitable? Which one is more profitable? You're uncircumcised as you keep the law, or you're circumcised and you disobey the law. Which one's more profitable? This is a picture of a Gentile that's not circumcised and righteous, right? And this happened not because of them keeping the law, but because Christ keeping the law for them. Then what happened? The Jews came in to try to convince the Gentiles that they are not saved without circumcision. Turn back to Acts chapter 15. Verse 1 it says, 
and certain men, he's talking about the Jews, and certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except you be circumcised, circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. And then in Galatians chapter 2, verse 4. says, and that because of false brethren, unawares brought in, who came in privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ, that they were, that they might bring us into bondage. It's the same thing. It's the same picture there. That's what Galatians was dealing with, was circumcision. And the same thing that happened there at the Jerusalem Council. They came in, the Jews came in, trying to convince the Gentiles that, yes, Christ is, you can add Christ to this, but you need to add circumcision. Without circumcision, you're not saved. And what's Paul's argument? It's not that, is it? It's just the opposite. The uncircumcised that keeps the law, they're saved. But you circumcised, which disregard the law. And remember, what did Jesus say about these same men? That they, they take the traditions of men and hold them higher than Scripture, right? The commandments of God. They make... Void the commandments of God because they hold to these traditions that, that make void the commandments of God. This is kind of like Rome, right? We see this today, right? There's a group today that we see this in. Oh, that's great. You're saved by grace, but you still need circumcision, right? Not often I do this, but I have, uh, I was going to say this the other day, this not often that I go to the Catholic catechism when I'm preparing a message. But listen to this. This is right from the catechism. This is official Roman Catholic doctrine. The Council of Trent teaches that the Ten Commandments are obligatory for Christians and that the justified man is still bound to keep them. The Second Vatican Council confirms the bishops, successors of the apostles, receive from the Lord the, teeth, the mission of teaching all peoples and of preaching the gospel to every creature so that all men may attain salvation through faith, baptism, and the observance of the commandments. Same thing, right? Same thing those Judaizers, what they called, those Judaizers were teaching. It's fine that you're saved by grace through faith, right? But you need to add this. You need to be circumcised. The, the, the heretics of our day say, it's fine you can be saved through faith by grace, but you must be baptized. You must keep the commandments. You see, we know about the Reformation. We call ourselves Reformed. We know about the Reformation. And the Reformation wasn't fighting Rome over salvation by grace, grace through faith. That's not that, that wasn't the fight. Rome will agree that salvation is by grace through faith. The Reformation was about what we call the solas. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone, in Scripture alone. It was the alone part that was the fight of the Reformation. The, the Rome, they use, I often say they use the same terms but a different dictionary. They say grace, but it's not really grace. It's not grace if it's if God saves you by grace, and then you must do all these works to keep yourself saved. It's not grace if, as it says, so that all men may attain salvation through faith, baptism, and the observance of the commandments. That's not grace. 
That's the opposite of grace. And we'll see it. I think it's Romans chapter 11. That grace is no more grace when you have works. That's why it's by grace alone. Here's another quite popular group in America. Mormonism. We know that it is by grace that we are saved. Right? After all that we can do. Ah. Double win, right? What that, that show? Big money. No way, big one. That, that's in the uh, Book of Mormon. We know that we are saved by, by grace that we are saved after all that we can do. The second thing is right here. We accept Christ's atonement by repenting of our sins, being baptized, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, and obeying all the commandments. Once again, the heretics teach salvation by grace. Grace but not grace alone. If it's not grace alone, it's not grace. Because once you say grace plus anything that we must do, it's not grace anymore. That's what the Jews were teaching in the first century. You see, this stuff doesn't change. There's nothing new under the sun. They would teach that you can have your Christ, but you need circumcision. And this is where we fail as humans far too much. Even within us, within real Christendom, sometimes we, we will argue that it's Christ plus nothing, right? We, all of us would argue. It's Christ plus nothing. And Christ plus nothing equals everything. But we act as though it's Christ plus something. You say, well, I don't really act like you. You act like that when you sin and you feel as though the Father's mad at you. God's mad at me today because I sinned. That's Christ plus something. I know. That's Christ plus something, isn't it? If Christ was everything, if he was propitiation that took away that wrath, took away that anger, no matter what sin you did, the Father's not angry with you. He can't be angry with you. Why? Because it was all spit on Christ. That's grace. That's, if you will, dangerous grace, right? Because what real grace is, and Paul deals with this in chapters 5 and 6 of Romans, that grace is, it doesn't matter how much you sin, it's paid for, it's gone. And then the argument of today is, well, then you'll just keep on sinning. Not with a regenerated heart. Not with faith and repentance. If we're thinking the way as though if I sin, God is mad at me now, <laughs> we're thinking that Christ wasn't enough. And I know, like I said, if in those times after you sin and you're walking around like, God's so mad at me today, if somebody would say, do you think Christ is enough? You'd say, yes, he's enough. And that's good, right? Because he is. And then what, what should our prayer be? Lord, I believe Help thou my unbelief. Back to our text here. Paul has just demonstrated that if a Gentile could keep the law, he would be righteous without circumcision.
it's hard to understand this without, unless it was part of the new covenant, in a sense like this. Since circumcision was part of the law, circumcision was part of the old covenant law, how could one keep the law and not be circumcised? Right? That's what Paul's argument The circumcision would keep the law. Or, I mean, the uncircumcised which keeps the law. How is that possible if circumcision is part of the law? There's one way, right off the top of my head, I can think of. It's be a female, right? They don't. There's no circumcision for females. But that's not what Paul's argument was. You know why? Because he was... He, I don't think he was obviously talking about a female, but the one that could be circumcised. Why? To drive this point, point home that your circumcision means nothing. Why? Because there's other men out there uncircumcised who are following Christ. And yes, it was part of the law, but if you only keep one part of the law, then you're just as guilty as, if, as the Gentile in chapter 1, that you're judging Right? In this part of the law, even though they could demonstrate it, they could say, I kept the law. I can prove it. It was done when they were eight days old, right? It's not like that age they were like, Mom, Dad, I want to obey God and get circumcised. They were just laying there crying when it happened. They didn't even know what happened. So that argument was still almost the same as, I'm a child of Abraham. Because the children of Abraham got circumcised. The men, they didn't have choice. It just happened. They ate, you got circumcised. I think that Paul proves that this sign did not mean righteousness for them individually. And like I said, he proves it, I think, in chapter 4 very clearly when he shows that Abraham was righteous, was counted righteous, was counted just, before circumcision. And also, because if the Gentile were to keep the law without the sign, he would be righteous. Our third point here is uncircumcised judges. In verse 27. <clears throat> and shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision thus transgress the law. In other words, if a Gentile kept the law, should he not judge you who were circumcised and transgressed the law? Now, once again, we know that nobody can keep the law perfect. However, let me add this to this. I say that, but then let, let me add this. In the eyes of God, I kept the law perfectly. In the eyes of God, I am a spotless lamb perfect and without blemish. In the eyes of God, I am righteous and just and holy, perfectly. There's not a blemish on me. Yet I didn't keep the law my whole life, did I? I didn't keep the law since my youth. I'm not the rich young ruler, right? I'm not rich young or a ruler. And I didn't keep the law since my youth. I'm more of a broke old follower who broke God's law since my youth. Yet God calls me, what does he call me? He calls me a saint. You know what that means? We, we, we think a saint as 
Our, our world has so messed up this world saint. As though it's after you die, then you get pronounced a saint. If you die and you're not a saint, you're in hell. But the word saint means holy one. It means sanctified one. Which really just means God took us and set us apart for holy use. That's what sanctification is. God, in, after he justifies you, he sanctifies you. He takes you and puts you aside to use you for something holy. The same thing that was spoken of in the Old Covenant when they when they took, like we were talking like before, with the Passover and in the temple and all this stuff, all that stuff was considered sanctified. Right? The, the, the cup you used to drink out of, it was considered sanctified. It was considered sanctified because the people took it and put it apart for holy use, and that's what they used it for. And it's the same picture that God sees us. He sees me as perfectly just and holy. If we wake up every morning with that thought in our head, God sees me just and holy today. He sees me perfect. He calls me just and sanctified and righteous. <laughs> Why? Because the actual just, holy, and righteous one gave his life for me. And he gave me his life, right? He gave me what's called that alien righteousness. Now, I'm not talking about some UFO stuff or Marvin the Martian type thing. He gave me what's called alien righteousness. I'm going by the truest definition of the word there. It means belonging to, it means more than this, but I'm going I'm to shorten it down. Belonging to a very different person. That righteousness, I didn't earn that righteousness. Jesus Christ came along and through his life earned that righteousness. And he gave that to me. That's why it's called alien righteousness. Because it belonged to him, yet he gave it to me. He placed it in my account. I'm considered just. I'm considered righteous. The second person of the Trinity, that was a righteousness earned by him. He never broke the law in one point. He was circumcised and kept the law. He was what neither of these guys that Paul's talking about here. He actually was circumcised and actually kept the law. Every single jot and tittle of the law. Something the Jews nor Gentiles ever did or could do. He, for every single second of his life, was in service and worship of God. Oh, but I thought Jesus was God. He is. But we must understand what's called the hypostatic union. I know I put up these terms sometimes. I'm thinking about putting together a little dictionary, a theological term to help us. But it's very simple. Hypostatic union, if you don't know the term, you at least know the truth of it if you're a Christian. It means that when Christ came and took on flesh, he became 100% man. And at the same time, 100% God. He didn't cease from being God when he began his earthly ministry. That's heresy. He remained perfectly God and man at the same time. And I know this is one of the things I struggled with as an early Christian. It's so hard to understand, right? It's just too hard to understand. And I say, welcome to the God of the universe. <laughs> if we could understand him, what kind of God would he be? He's not like us. You see that, right? We know from Scripture, He's not like us. So I'll, I'll tell you this. Outside of these studies that we've been doing on Sundays and Wednesdays, 
I've been in a little personal study, listening to a lot of sermons and reading a lot of stuff on what's called the aseity of God. And it it's some it just simply means that God is self-sufficient. God derives nothing from outside of himself to exist. But when I sit down and I start thinking about this, and I'm hearing people talk about it, and I'm reading about it, it almost makes me hyperventilate. Like, I start thinking, he's everywhere. He's, he's always existed. I don't understand it. But it's true. He's always existed outside of himself. Always existed without something outside of himself making him exist. That's what it means. You don't understand that. I don't understand that. We don't understand uncalled causes, right? Because we can't experience that at all except for in God. That's the only place we see this. But back to this right, alien righteousness. Um, Jesus in his humanity kept the law perfect for his people. How can Paul use these Gentiles as an example? As an example? Because Jesus in his humanity kept the law perfect for his people. He lived a perfect life, and then he died for the sins of his people. So he not only lived a righteous life that he gives to us, he died a sinner's death and took our sin away. That's another big term, but big theological term that we, we already know. That's called double imputation. My sin was counted to Christ. His righteousness was counted to me. He gave me his righteousness, and my sin was placed on him as he was crushed on that tree. It might be a big theological term, but that's something we must all believe. If you call yourself a Christian, you believe that. My sins, whether they were past, present, or future, were all taken away and placed upon the Lamb. God's Lamb. And He slaughtered that Lamb. As we talk about the Passover before the service, we see they, they brought forth this, this, this perfect, unblemished Lamb. That's what God did. He brought... Behold, the Lamb of God. God brought His own Lamb, perfect, unblemished, and slaughtered Him. For what? For our sins. For the sins of His people. For He shall save His people from their sins. Right? That's great. There's no better news than that. There is no better news than that. If today somebody said that they would give you their whole inheritance, which meant a private island and trillions and trillions of dollars, it pales in comparison to that, to that news, that news that we already have, that news that we're scared to go talk to people about. If the whole earth were given to you, it pales in comparison to that. This is honestly some of the reason I like... Uh, it's called astronomy, right? The study of astrology. I don't want to say astrology because that's like oh. yeah, astrology. I believe is the the horoscopes and stuff. Astronomy is where they study this, the planets. I love that because it shows how tiny Earth is. And you know what? If you're flying, when did these planes fly over top of us? They probably can't even see us. <laughs> so we're like a speck on a speck in space. Space is. And we're a little tiny speck on there. But if that whole earth was given to you, it still pales in comparison to what was given to you on that cross. If the whole universe 
was given to you, it pales in comparison. Why? We're given eternal life. We're given, I'll say this, we're given more than eternal life. We are given God himself. Right? That's what salvation is. It's getting God. We, we get to be in the presence of God, worshiping God. That's what it's about. It's not about... Golden Road and what heaven is going to be like. It's about we get to be in the presence of God for all eternity, singing praises and worshiping and serving Him. We're given a right relationship with God through the blood of His Son, and there's nothing that could be better than that. But back to our text here. That's how anybody, Jew or Gentile, can fulfill the law. Right? It says, And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee, who by letter and circumcision does transgress the law. That's how they fulfill the law. That's how anybody can fulfill the law. Nobody's ever fulfilled the law besides Christ. So the question is, why is this important to the recipient of this letter originally? Why, why does that matter to the, to, the, to the guy in Rome? Because they are Gentiles. Paul's writing this letter to Gentiles. They are Romans. And the thought up until the first century was that only Jews could be saved. Those were God's people, the Jews. Now Paul is coming along as what they call the apostle to the Gentiles and proving otherwise. Actually proving that God is not a respecter of persons, and anybody can be saved. But I, he's actually proving the opposite of that in our text here, right? Is that anybody can be damned, Jew or Gentile. Whether circumcised or uncircumcised, you stand guilty before God outside of the Messiah. That's why it's important. He's writing this to Gentiles. last point here, Paul's judgment. Remember how this chapter started? I'm going to read verse 1. You got ESV. Will you read that? Verse 1? Yeah. Chapter 2? Yeah. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you, who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. This was said to the Jew. You're judging... But now Paul says, the Gentiles will judge you. <laughs> right? Remember the transition from chapter 1 where the, the, the Gentiles kind of left down here in the mire and the Jew comes along and then Paul says, but who are you, old man, to judge them? But now he's flipping the script on them, right? The Gentiles won't judge you. Those ones that you're judging from verse in verse 1 from chapter 1, they're going to judge you. Because why? Because you're a breaker of God's law. Now, maybe not specifically the one that's left in the mire, but the one that God comes and plucks up out of the mire will judge you. What a slap to the face of these people, right? 
What a way to humble this man. You are judging them now, but they will judge you because you're not a keeper of God's law. And I know you act like you are. And I know you like being called a Jew. And you think yourself a teacher of babes and the lights of darkness. But you will be judged by the very ones you're judging. Those ones that don't have the law nor circumcision will judge you. This makes me think oftentimes how this world thinks certain people are God's people, right? The world thinks most of the time who God's people are, they're not really God's people. The Jews were called God's people. Yet they weren't for the most part. The Gentiles, they saw them as God's people, as Yahweh's people. But they weren't for the most part. Now, there was a remnant for sure, right? But though they outwardly professed to be and acted as though they were righteous, they were not righteous. And this should be a warning to us too, right? It's not about profession. It's not about family. It's not about what you've done. It's about your standing with God. And that standing can only be right if you're in Christ. That's it. And if you're in Christ, you now have called to do good works, right? And it's for his namesake. That's what, when we talk about, like, when we were praying earlier, you know, we're all here, we're all worshiping God, but even though we do benefit from this, we come here for his name's sake, right? You can't say amen, you gotta say ouch, right? We, we come here to worship for his name's sake. We serve for his name's sake. Like I said, it does benefit us. Let's go to this couple verses right here. Rome, uh, Revelation chapter 5. This is about the Gentiles ruling and reigning and judging. Chapter 5, verse 9. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book. And to open the seals thereof. For thou hast slain, for thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And God hath made unto and hath made unto us our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Let me mention this before I, I a little bit of this here. In this verse, chapter, or uh, chapter 5, verse 10, and it says, And hast made us unto our God kings and priests. There's a textual variant there. I don't know if you guys know anything about these, but um, in the Byzantine, the, the majority text, it says, Basileus is the, the Greek word there. We're in the, the minority text, the West Kind of Word, is Basileia. So there's just a small textual variant there. And the former means king. That's what it's translated. KJV translated king. ESV be translated kingdom. And but the word, it can mean royal power or kingship or dominion or rule. 
So the idea is pretty much the same, whether no matter which translation you have. We are kings and a kingdom under our king Jesus, right? However, notice what it says. Out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, made us kings and priests. Not just the Jews. God has made his kingdom out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and they will reign on earth. That's what it says. The word here for reign is the same one that's used for king. Notice where it, where it says they'll reign too. Chapter 5, verse 10. And hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign where? In heaven. No. After the consummation. Maybe. But at the very least, it's here. It says, we shall reign on earth. Here. We will be kings and priests here on earth. Yes, we will be in heaven, but we will be kings and priests here on earth. We, Gentiles and believing Jews, will reign here in a kingdom. And if you are in Christ, that's about you. This is talking about you. God is not a respecter of persons. You say, you want to judge these Gentiles? Jew in chapter 2? You want to judge the Gentiles? Well, God's going to make them kings and priests to reign over you. To judge you, to have dominion, to rule. That's talking about us. That's talking about the Romans. That's why when Paul was writing this to those Romans in the first century, it meant so much. And believe me, they knew far more about kingship than we do today. We don't. We don't really understand kingship because we don't. We have. Well, we have one in there now trying trying some king stuff, but we rule by. A different manners which a king would. So God is not a respecter of persons, Jew or Gentile. If you are in Christ, you are kings and priests today and reigning on earth. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 2 and verse 6. And I'm close with that.
God's going to make him kings and priests to judge and to rule and to reign over you, this obedient one, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. God's people will reign in Christ, though, right? That's, that's the big caveat we must recognize. We rule in Christ, under Christ. So I only have one point of application. And a simple point. Trust in Christ. Right? Isn't that what... That's the problem that we're dealing with right there in Romans chapter 2. The Jews thought their circumcision earned them favor with God. Earned them grace with God. Earn them salvation. Yet Paul says the uncircumcised will judge you. Trust in Christ. Not your baptism. Not your works. That's what the text should teach us practically today. The Jews trusted in their works. They pointed to the works. They're so-called Christians today that point to the works, right? As I already mentioned, the son would say, look to your baptism. Look to yourself to see if you're in Christ, right? What kind of backwards thinking is that? There's some that would that almost that always argue that you need to examine your life and works to see if you're in Christ. I've heard this message. I've heard it many, many times. Examine yourself. See if your works. Look at your works to see if you're in Christ. If you examine yourself and you don't see sin, there's something wrong. Right? Obviously, we don't want that, but that's the reality. If we can examine ourselves and think that we have so many, so many good works that we can rest in that, we're no different than the Jew here. But if you examine yourself and you don't see sin, there's something wrong. Why? Because it's there. You just don't see it, right? Sin is still present. What did Paul say? When I would do good, evil is present with me. Right? If you examine yourself and you don't see sin, it just means you're a hypocrite and blind to your own sin and blind from your sins too. It means you need to get more into the Word of God and more into prayer. It means you need to have accountability from God's people in a loving manner, right? It may mean that maybe God's people aren't coming alongside you like they should, right? And I know this is sometimes hard as God's people because we don't want to offend the brother or sister by pointing out their sin, but it's needed. It is needed. However, it's also needed that we demonstrate patience and grace with them in that. Not just every time sin pops up, like, look, you're doing this wrong, you're doing that wrong, you're doing this wrong, you're doing that wrong. Be patient. We grow, do we not? And when you're examining yourself, because it's needed, not to see if I sin less or if sin may be absent, but when you see your sin, do as Luther did. I have this quote from Luther today. He's talking to Satan. I don't know why I did it. 
Luther talked to Satan. He threw stuff in too. He did other stuff I'm not going to mention in the survey. He says, Take up the slate and write as I shall dictate to you. My sins are many. My transgressions in the sight of an infinite holy God are countless as the hairs on my, of my head. In me there dwelleth no good thing. But Satan, after that last sin you have recorded, write the announcement which I shall repeat from 1 John 1, 7. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. You see that? That's not the words of a hypocrite. Then. He knew his sin. He knew his sins were many, right? More than the hairs on my head. But he believed Christ and he repented of his sins. That's what self-examination self should do. It brings us to the cross in repentance, right? When, you, when we look in the mirror and we see our works, it's not, I'm doing such a good job. If you get there, on this side of glory, you need to probably find some repentance. You need to find that brother in Christ that come along and slap you side of the face. Really, because you won't get there this side of glory. When you look at your works, you feel, more often than not, I didn't do enough. Or I did too much this. And not enough that. And God, forgive me, I'm coming to the cross again in faith and repentance. That's what self-examination does. It brings us to the cross and repentance. That's why it's good. It makes us believe the gospel. The scriptures say that the law of the schoolmaster brings us to Christ. But that's because of our sin that we must flee to Christ, right? The, the, the law, what the law does is expose our sin to us. And then we flee to Christ, right? The law demonstrates our failure, our sin, and we look to Christ for rest and comfort as our propitiation. So don't look to your works for salvation or for your security. That's what I was talking about. Oftentimes people preach of eternal security. They don't. They say, let's go to 1 John and see, are you doing this? Are you doing that? Are you doing this? Are you doing that? Well, sorry, but none of us are. Now we are, we are trying to do these things, but we're failing and what does it say in James? If you kept the law, whole law, you have offended one point, you're guilty of all of it. So don't look to your works for your salvation or your security. Look to Christ. When you're doubting that you're saved, where do you look? To Christ. And I didn't hear that much as a young Christian. I heard if you're doubting, it's because of sin. Fight sin. <laughs> now that may be true. We do need to fight sin. But look to Christ first and foremost. And by looking to him, you will fight sin. But our first answer should be to look to Christ. Y'all know there's somewhat of a joke. I don't know if y'all know, like, with the children's churches and stuff, oftentimes when you're teaching the children, anytime you ask any question at all, you know the little three-year-old go, and what? What, Johnny? Jesus. Man, I asked ask any question, any question at all, and he always... The children always like Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Y'all know about that? <laughs> Y'all wanted to talk to children. You know. Who built the ark? Jesus. <laughs> Who was on the mountain when the Ten Commandments came down? Who was it given to? Jesus. 
But maybe they're onto something, right? Maybe we big theologian type with the big brains and the big heads, and I, I put myself in that category too. Uh, we need to learn some a thing or two from children, right? Always look to Christ. When you're doubting, when you're examining yourself, when you're failing, when you're depressed, when you're excited, He is the answer. It's always Jesus. And look to Him for everything, right? Amen? Amen. I'm going to say a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you for bringing us all here. We thank you for your word, your, your inspired word that teaches us week in and week out. It teaches us, Father, that we're not enough, but your son is more than enough. We thank you for opening up our eyes to see this, giving us ears to hear, eyes to see, placing us in him, giving us his righteousness and taking our sin away. No, we be, as your word says, circumcised, uncircumcised. It doesn't matter, Father. Christ was everything. He is everything. He's all we have. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. 